The Insulone Podcast is brought to you by Cybionics, an emerging CGM brand that focuses on simplifying how individuals aged 18 and above monitor and control their blood sugar levels. Upon becoming available on the market, the Cybionics GS1 CGM has helped users worldwide navigate the complexities of diabetes management with more confidence and peace of mind. Thanks to Cybionics, now more people are able to view and share their real-time glucose data, receive customizable glucose alarms, and generate full AGP reports, all directly from an intuitive Cybionics app, empowering them with the necessary information to make better decisions about their health. Cybionics combines data accuracy and comfort of wear, which is important to us all, with a feature-rich app. The 14-day scanning-free and calibration-free Cybionics GS1 CGM aims to deliver reliable, seamless diabetes management experiences. For more, check out CybionicsCGM.com. This is the Insulone Podcast, where I, own Costello, try to redefine diabetes. In this week's episode, when I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, you, you're kind of slapped in the face with reality of, wow, you're not invincible as a 19-year-old because you've just been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and now, to a certain extent, your health is at risk almost every day. But before we get into that, everything you hear on the Insulone podcast is from my own personal experience. And if you have any worries or issues regarding your diabetes, please contact a medical professional. Now, let's get stuck into this episode. Ho, ho, ho. It's a big one today. It's a very big one today. We've done it. Graham, triple digits. Hundreds, hundreds? 100 episodes of the Insulon Podcast. How's it feel, Graham? Feels good. Jeez, can you imagine doing 100 episodes when we were sitting in that sweaty studio one Saturday in, uh, in City Centre? And uh, we decided to record two at a time. What were you feeling back then? Because obviously we just hop on now and we have a chat and we bash out an episode. But uh, can you believe you've come this far in terms of all those episodes and how easy it is now to record? Absolutely not. I remember even the first, I'd say like, (laughs) you sure you know better than anyone, Graham, the first good few that we had done, I was absolutely terrified. Yeah. And I was like worried about my tone of voice. I was worried about the speed in which I was talking, all these different things, because it was so new. And thankfully, I had the radio master to, ah. to guide to guide me the whole way through. But no, honestly, thinking back to the studio that we were in in town recording the first, I think it was the first six episodes, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100 episodes down the line, we had been talking about, oh, won't it be cool to hit triple digits one day? Mm-hmm. And the day has finally come. The day has finally mental. come. I have a question for you, Graham. Go on. Given the 100 episodes that we've done, given the the things we've gone through, the stories we've heard, the people we've interviewed, what's been your main takeaway from the podcast so far? Do you know what? This is honestly true. It is I now have a lot more compassion and patience with people. And that is because of this podcast. That's one point that comes out a lot when, listen, you've said it yourself and 
a lot of your guests have said it is when you don't actually know what's going on with somebody's life. So I don't know that someone's diabetic and same with what's going on with their mental health and all that kind of stuff. And I actually find, <clears throat> excuse me, there's my voice. You're crying. Yeah. <laughs> I actually find that I'm a lot more patient with people. And mm. even in my day to day job, I used to be very, what would the word be? Um, I wouldn't be demanding with other people, but I would expect everyone else to be, to be putting in the same effort that I put in. And now I kind of have to understand that someone putting in a lot of effort in my eyes might be completely different to how they perceive it. And sometimes I might expect too much of somebody and there might be something going on in their personal life, which they might be able to uh, give 110% that specific day. So I've really kind of taken a step back and kind of had a bigger picture of you. And I think it's got a lot to do with this podcast. A lot. Mm. So there's my... That's nice to hear. There's my... It reminds me of a Malcolm Gladwell book. I don't know if you've read it, but it's called Talking to Strangers. And it's all about how our perceptions of certain things in our lives can kind of be put onto other people. And like you've said about your expectations of someone's amount of hard work could be very, very different to what you would expect from yourself. Mm. Um, So there's a book recommendation for you. If you haven't read it, read it. Did were you talking to my my mate John Salmon about that book? Was that the think, one? Yeah, I think I might have been. He we we met there a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about that specific book. And he said, oh, "I was chatting to Owen about it when you were doing some work together." And he said, "I must give it to you when uh, when I finish it, or he has finished it, or someone else has it." But I was like, "Yeah, that sounds right down my alleyway." Yeah, I'll give it to you. And anyone listening, talking to strangers, Malcolm Gladwell, it's unreal. So let's get into episode number one. Hundred. Here we go. And for this one, Owen, you thought you were going to put up a few question boxes on your Instagram. Slightly different this time because, you know, we, we always encourage emails into the show via the podcast at gmail.com. And we want that as well because that allows for long form conversations and longer stories. But uh, you had the idea to do something a little bit different this time where for 100 episodes, let's get those short, quick questions in. Maybe some things you always wanted to ask, but... um. You never really had anywhere to ask it. It's not as big as sending an email. Just insert this question box in your Instagram. So you forward them on to me. I've got the questions. Will I put some to you? And let's see where we go. 100%. Just before we get into it, just to reiterate the fact that anything I say or any answer that I give is based on how I may approach a similar situation. It's not me giving you advice about what you should do. So just, just clearing that up first. All right, let's kick off. Let's start with Alan from the USA. And he says, what methods do you use to find your insulin sensitivity factor and insulin to carb ratio? Oh, great question, Alan. And very relevant given my recent experience with COVID. And for me, so much of getting my insulin to carb ratio is trial and error, trial and error, trial and error. But how I go about it is basically I give myself a number to start with. So let's say it's one to 10. So my insulin to carb ratio starting out is one unit of insulin to 10 grams of carbohydrate. What I'll do is I'll have a meal. I'll carb count that meal. Let's say it's 50 grams of carbohydrate from pasta. Therefore, I know that I require five units of insulin for that pasta. I will take the five units. I will eat the pasta. And then based on the result my blood sugar gives me from that meal, i.e., do I go high, do I go low, or do I stay stable? That's a pretty good indicator as to 
whether or not that was an accurate ratio. So if my blood sugar goes high, that would indicate that I didn't take enough insulin. So my ratio may have been one to five, one to eight. If my blood sugar goes low, that proves that I took too much insulin. My ratio might've been one to 12, one to 15. And if I stay stable, might indicate that it's a pretty accurate ratio. So a trial and error with that, with different amounts of meals or different types of foods over, for me, I usually do it like a, a 48 hour period just to get a good gauge as to what the results are with specific ratios. Okay, next one from Beth in England. Oh, I love this one. What would you thank diabetes for? It's the question that you ask oh. all your guests, but Beth has turned it on its head. So what's your answer? And the last time I answered this question, I think I was like on the verge of crying on the 10 year episode. So I'm going to try and not cry for, for this time. I, I like crying. I said I'd only, I'd only cry on one episode ever. So that's it. Uh, what I would thank diabetes for? Uh, a couple things, to be honest, but the one that always jumps out at me is I feel as if I've kind of found my purpose. And what I mean by that is if I wasn't diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, I inevitably wouldn't be working with other type 1 diabetics. I wouldn't have a type 1 diabetic podcast, which I both I love both of them dearly and I really enjoy doing both of them. Um, so the fact that I was diagnosed, I would thank my diabetes for finding my purpose. I know it's a, a cliche thing to say. Uh, and another thing I would thank it for is I feel as if because diabetes has a unique way of kind of keeping you in the moment of what's my blood sugar at right now, or I don't want to high or I don't want to low. It keeps you quite grounded in the exact moment. It also keeps you <laughs> looking ahead long-term, but I feel as if it's given me the ability to kind of appreciate the smaller everyday moments. And sometimes I might not seem, or I might not, look as if I am, but vast majority of the time, most of the things that I'm doing in the back of my head, I really feel that I'm there and I really appreciate that I'm with these people, I'm doing these things or whatever it might be. I like that. Good answer. Celine in Cork in Ireland says, how do you deal with diabetes burnout? 26 years type one and I'm struggling with it. Yeah, that's a tricky one. And I think... Diabetes burnout is something that I feel everybody is going to go through at some stage throughout their diabetic career, let's call it. Um, it can vary in severity from person to person, depending on your own personal circumstances or your, even your own relationship with your diabetes. But for me and my experience and, and how I try to avoid it as much as possible is I try to take each day as it comes because sometimes it can be quite overwhelming when we think of all the long-term things that we need to consider with diabetes. But what I always say and what I've consistently said throughout this podcast is our long-term is always built from our short-term. What we're doing today, tomorrow, next week, next month has the influence to affect our long-term in a positive or a negative way, in my opinion. So what I try to do is I try to break it down and simplify it into 
my day by day, even meal by meal. What can I focus on? What do I have the ability to control? Can I be disciplined with my insulin to carb ratios? Can I be disciplined with my insulin timing? All these small things that diabetes for me is broken down into. And a way that I can stay consistent with that is giving myself non-negotiables each day that I know will benefit my management. And they will be drinking water, trying to prioritize sleep, moving some way throughout the day, whether it be a workout or a walk or a run, just moving because I know that's going to have a positive impact. And I think when we can separate ourselves as much as possible from the overwhelm of the long term and really look at what can I do today that's not overwhelming, that can be broken down, that can benefit me right now today rather than God, I have to do all of these things long term. How can I how can I always comprehend that I need to consistently do these things? So for me it's just trying to break it down into day by day, even meal by meal. Brilliant. I hope that helps. Lemon from Germany says, if your life since diagnosis was a movie, what would be the title? Unreal. <laughs> That's such a good question. That's a good question. Um Let's see. It used to be a lot, but can I ask you to kind of maybe go a little bit another way? If your life was a movie title, what would it be? If you could choose a movie that's already well, out there. <laughs> well, so maybe give us two. I don't know. Okay. I, I want to ask what, that one. What's come to my head now is, do you know, do you know that movie Captain Phillips? With Tom Hanks, right? Uh, yeah. the, the pirates hijacked the, the boat. <laughs> I don't know why it's coming to my head. But you know when when the pirate goes up to Tom Hanks and he goes, I'm the captain now. Mm. Maybe I'd call my movie Captain Phillips because that's me <laughs> saying to myself, I'm the captain now. When I was diagnosed, I became the captain of what I have to do each day, what I have to look after, what I have to manage, and essentially try to be in control of what I of what I can do as much as possible. I when you were starting to say Captain Phillips, I took it completely differently. I thought the ship was you and the pirates was diabetes and and the pirates had taken over the ship. <laughs> well that could work too. So yeah no, that's, because that's you for con- both. you're you're the captain. You're the captain now. <laughs> no, that scene just came to my head where where he points at him he's like, I'm the captain now. Oh, I like that. Good answer. <laughs> At Gemini, Crete says, how can complications be avoided in the future? Another great question. That kind of, for me, touches back on what Celine asked in terms of diabetes burnout. And for me, there's always a massive emphasis put on the fact that we live with diabetes and the fact that we're more than likely going to live with diabetes for the rest of our lives. And like I said, that overwhelm can sometimes take over because it's like, oh, all these different things that I have to do each day. And if I don't do them, they have a direct impact on my blood sugar. And therefore, they have a direct impact on my energy, my mood, my sleep, all these all these different things. So what I like to do again to become the captain and try to avoid those long-term complications, which I obviously don't need to go into detail about, is to 
take each day as it comes. Because as I will continue to say, our long-term health is built from our short-term health. Our long-term is built from what am I doing today? What am I doing tomorrow, next week and next month? Because all of those things add up over time. So in my own life, how I ensure that, well, how I hope to avoid complications long-term is prioritizing it each day and breaking it down into what can I do today that I know will benefit me? Exercise, prioritize my sleep, eat good food, quote unquote, good food. There's no good and bad, but you know what I mean? Accurately carb count, do all these different things that we know are sometimes annoying, are sometimes boring, are sometimes very frustrating to even have to consider. But these are the decisions that consistently have an impact on our blood sugar. And if we're doing these things consistently and doing them well each day, we're doing all we can to avoid those complications. Next up, Derek in Canada says, what has been the most important lesson you've learned from diabetes? Oh, there's some good questions coming out here. They're actually fantastic questions yeah. like these. Um, say it again. What, what was that question again? What has been the most important lesson you've learned from diabetes? Ooh. Oh, there's a lot for that one, I'd say. But what comes to mind initially is that... These are all going to sound like very cliche things to say, but but they're from my own experience and I feel passionately about them. So the first one would be your life is so short. And I know it's like, oh, life goes so fast and time, you can't hold on to time, et cetera, et cetera. But thinking back to 10 years ago when I was diagnosed, that feels like it was last week. Mm. And Sometimes you can think about it and it's like, whoa, yeah, 10 years was a really long time. And then other times you think about it and it's like, that was quite literally last week, (laughs) you know. Um, And I think when you look back over standout moments in your life, like when I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and realize that that was 10 years ago. you, You come to that sudden realization of, oh, my God, that time flew by. So I think realizing that your life is very short, again, much like answering um, Beth's question earlier about being present and being in the moment, it's the lesson I, I'm beating around the bush here. The lesson that I've learned is that life is short. And if, if you can learn the skill of appreciating the smallest things, it's only going to have a beneficial impact on your life. And another thing that I have learned from diabetes is that anything you want takes hard work and it takes consistent work, whether that be losing fat, whether that be building muscle, whether that be getting stronger, whether that be trying to build a business, whether that be recording 100 podcast episodes, whether that be learning a new skill and specifically whether that be you being at your best with your diabetes. It's a very, very difficult and complex condition to deal with and it takes a lot of hard work to be consistent with it and it takes a lot of hard work to 
keep your time and range a certain height that you want it or keep your A1C in a certain way that you want it. And for me, realizing that something like that takes hard work so consistently translates then to anything else I do. And I, I realized that, well, if I want to do this thing, it's not just going to happen overnight. It's, it's a lot of hard work. One more. Uh, I know I'm going on on this question. But go, 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 go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another cliche answer to that great question from Derek is your health is your wealth. And I've said it on this podcast before about how when I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, you, you're kind of slapped in the face with reality of, wow, you're not invincible as a 19-year-old because you've just been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And now, to a certain extent, your health is at risk almost every day because you need to keep your bloods in, in a certain range. And for me, having that realization of, wow, your health actually is your wealth, you appreciate it more. And appreci you appreciate your friend's health, you appreciate your family's health. And it's just a good mindset for me to have, I believe. And a good example of that is, <laughs> is because... If I know my health isn't where I want it to be, i.e. if my blood sugar isn't where I want it to be each day, that has a direct impact on my mood, my energy, my sleep, my performance in the gym, my performance in business, whatever it might be. And yesterday, uh, <laughs> again, is the perfect example of it because I had loads to do and I had a few calls to make and I always want to obviously be at my best when I'm doing anything I'm doing. And yesterday I put on a new Dexcom sensor. The first 24-ish hours of a sensor can be quite unpredictable readings wise. But what, what happened was I put on a sensor. The readings were obviously a bit unpredictable because it was kind of warming up, doing its thing. It wasn't going to be as accurate. But because I was busy, I glanced at my Dexcom. It said double arrows, 10 up. So I was like, oh, Christ, here we go. So what I did was I took a two-unit correction of insulin without double-checking with my finger prick. And my Dexcom was telling me it was high, but I wasn't actually high because it was still warming up and doing its thing. So because I treated an imaginary, or imaginary high, inevitably I crashed down the other end mm. and... That hypo hit me like a ton of bricks. Now, I was fine, but there, there are different types of hypos where, one, you might kind of creep down to the lower end, eat a few glucose tablets, and you're fine. Then the other ones where you may as well be hit by a car because yeah. you're just knocked out of it. And basically, I had to just put a few things on pause, lie down on the couch for like an hour until I recovered. Wow. So I know that if my health is my wealth or if my health is my priority, then I do have the ability to perform at my best. Whereas if I neglect it or if I don't give it the time it deserves or I, I don't even appreciate it as much as I should, then things like that would probably happen a lot more frequently. And therefore, that would have an impact on other things I want to do. Does that answer the question? <laughs> I think so. I think Derek okay. got, got enough there. <laughs> okay, we'll move on to Fran in Ireland. And Fran wants advice for partners living with a type 1 diabetic. 
Ooh, great question. And mm. f- that's Fran that I know well. I used to work with Fran. She's amazing. Lives down in Dingle. Living the life down in Dingle. Sold her business. Lives in Dingle. Lives by the sea. Living the, wow. <laughs> living the dream. Dingle is So thanks gorgeous. for getting in touch, Fran, as always. And yeah, it's a good question. And I think like it can be a tricky one because sometimes if somebody doesn't have the best relationship with their own diabetes, they can be even more apprehensive to be as open about their diabetes in a relationship that they might be in. And I suppose if I was speaking directly to the partner of a type one diabetic, I would probably say, try to be as understanding as possible. And it, and type one diabetes is one of those con- conditions that no matter how much you think you understand about it, you still don't fully understand unless you live with it. And I know for anybody who's listening to that, they understand it because of course our partners and our parents and our friends will want to know as much as possible. But it is one of those very intimate sort of conditions that unless you live with it, it's very, very difficult to truly understand the extent of it and how much it has an an impact on your day overall. So try to be understanding, try to be open-minded about the whole thing. Much like a diabetic themselves need to be, I would be, as a partner, very patient and accommodating to what a type 1 diabetic needs. And what I mean by that is if a type 1 diabetic is saying, I would rather wait 15 minutes to eat my food because I've just taken my insulin or I would rather eat X meal than X meal or I'm tired, I've just had a hypo and all these different things that inevitably will come up. I think if you as a partner are very patient with all of those sorts of things, it reinforces the fact that diabetes isn't a major issue. And of course it is an issue. But what I mean by that is it's like, it's not an issue for the relationship. And I think that's important. And it's important for a diabetic themselves to to feel that in a relationship. And another, another thing I'd say is don't feel bad about wanting to do something that isn't beneficial to diabetes. And what, what I mean by that, I'm not really saying this right, but what I mean by that is, let's say, for example, it's a Friday night and one of the partners uh, suggests, oh, let's get a pizza. And the diabetic says, you know what? I'd rather not have a pizza because I want a good night's sleep tonight. I don't have awful blood sugars throughout the night. And they say, you go ahead. You have one anyway. I'd love, I'd love you to order a pizza. When they say that, they really mean that. So don't think, oh, I'd feel bad now getting a pizza. Is it a trap? It is a trap. <laughs> so if... When the pizza comes, like, well, how dare you get a pizza? I'm <laughs> yeah, diabetic. Exactly. No, don't feel bad about wanting to do something different that isn't for diabetes. So like, if the diabetic in the relationship wants to eat a salad for dinner or whatever it might be, you shouldn't feel bad that you want to have a pizza and that you eat a pizza because it's acceptable. You can have different meals. 
that came to my head. I think I think that's an important one. No, that's good. And another one would be try to be prepared for times that the person living with diabetes themselves may not be prepared for. And what I mean by that, again, I I know I need to elaborate on all of these points that I'm making, but there's a lot going on in the mind and the head of a type 1 diabetic to realize I need my insulin, I need my blood monitor, I need to bring hypo treatment, all these different things that we need to consider. If you, as a partner, let's say, for example, always have hypo treatment on you, just in case, and you're out for a walk or a hike, and if by chance the person living with type 1 diabetes has forgot their hypo treatment, you can whip out a packet of glucose tablets and save the day. So always be as prepared as they would be and always be prepared to be more prepared than they might be. (laughs) Mm, That's good. Okay, next up is Ashley Martin from Ireland. And I think I know um, what the story is behind this one. Uh, She asks, is diabetes caused by eating too much sugar? (laughs) I recognize that name. Yeah, I recognize recognize that name. So Ashley Martin is one of my current clients, star client. And she emailed in last week about her experience, which was great to hear. So this question is obviously a joke from her. (laughs) But to answer the question, no, type 1 diabetes is not caused by eating too much sugar. I wish a lot more people worldwide realized that. Hopefully they'll listen to the podcast and hopefully they will realize it. Thank you for your message, Ashley. <laughs> Thank you for your joke, Ashley. Uh, it's our boy, Tobe from Sweden. Amazing. And he wants to know, what is your opinion on sweeteners? Ooh. As always, Tobe, I appreciate you getting in touch. I, I can't, can't describe how much we appreciate the constant uh, support and engagement. But to be quite honest with you, Tobe, I don't have much of an opinion on sweeteners because I personally haven't really used them before. And I don't want to give my opinion on something I don't know that much about from my own personal experience. But how I would look at it is if I was having a cup of tea and I put a spoonful of actual sugar in compared to a spoonful of, I don't know, stevia, what are the sweeteners people use? Uh, I would imagine that the full proper sugar would have a very different impact on my blood sugar. So even though I don't have much personal experience using sweeteners, I would probably opt for a sweetener before a full spoonful of sugar into my tea. A couple more left. We'll go with at Bernie704 and they want to know how to deal with foot to floor, especially when I work out first thing. Do I give a small shot? Question mark. Hmm, good question. Obviously, I can't advise you to take insulin or not, but... What I would look at is, and again, this would be from my own experience, but I would try to understand how different exercise affects you at different times a day, because different types of exercise themselves can have a very different impact on blood sugar. So to give you an example, if I know that I'm going out for a run, I'm pretty 100% sure that my blood sugar is going to drop. Whereas if I go to the gym and squat with heavy weight my blood sugar is probably going to have a bit of a rise Mm. so in that situation if i have foot to floor 
and I'm going to the gym first thing, I would want to determine what type of workout or training I'm doing. Because if I was going for a run, first thing, I wake up, foot the floor, my blood sugar spikes. I wouldn't do anything. I would just go for the run because I know for me, that run would naturally bring my blood sugar back down. Whereas if I had foot the floor and I was spiking and I knew I was going to do heavy weights, I probably would take insulin because I know for me, with that weight workout, my blood sugar is probably going to spike. And even a bit of my own experience with foot to floor, I kind of went through different phases of not having dawn phenomenon, having dawn phenomenon, not having foot to floor, having foot to floor. And basically what foot to floor is, it's like after you've been asleep and obviously you've been fasted for six, seven, eight hours, when you essentially put your feet to your floor, get up and go about your day, there's a natural release of glucose to essentially fuel you for the morning, causing your blood sugar to spike. I was going through a, a phase where I was consistently seeing foot to floor like 5, 10, 15 minutes after I woke up, after I got out of bed. And this happened for, I think, like a couple of months, eight, a good few years ago now. But it got to the stage where it was so consistent and I could predict it so accurately that I was essentially taking two units of insulin before I even got out of bed because it was like, it's like I was pre-bolusing me getting out of bed because I knew that my blood sugar was, was going to naturally spike. Then obviously as the table started to turn and that's kind of stopped, I obviously saw a couple lows in the morning because I was taking insulin and I wasn't seeing foot to floor. So to go back to Bernie's question, I would look specifically at how different types of exercises affect you personally and see if, can I naturally treat that high with something like a walk or a run? And finally, from Sarah Dernan, she wants to know tips to stop over-treating hypos. I wish there was a magic button, <laughs> magic button you could press because like I've said earlier on, there are different types of hypos and there's hypos that kind of creep lower you have a few glucose tablets and you're fine then there are other ones where you feel as if you've again been hit by a bus so with hypos the number one priority all the time is getting your blood sugar up and that should always be the priority but once we know we're in a safe place of right I can safely treat this hypo. I'm in no potential immediate danger. Then the next goal that we have is to not completely skyrocket the other side. So for me, it's important that I have a strategy to treat hypos. And that strategy includes keeping a pretty close eye on my bloods, keeping, uh, I suppose, a close eye on how I feel whether or not I think I'm, I'm dipping or coming down and having a packet of glucose tablets on me at all times. I know that if my blood's slightly dipped down to low fours, below four, 3.5, I know that if I have three to five glucose tablets, it's going to bring me up quickly and it's not going to lead to a massive high to the other end. So in terms of 
stopping over treating hypos i would always have a packet of glucose tablets on you depending on how low you are try to treat the low without going overboard and look it's a lot easier said than done when you're not having a low but it's very different when all you want to do is just shovel all sorts of food into your mouth to treat it so don't know if that really answers the question but have a strategy in terms of if i go to 3.5 if i go to 4 whatever it might be for you personally always have a packet of glucose tablets and then be patient with your blood sugar coming back up because if you're relying on a cgm and i know again from my own experience if you're relying on your cgm to tell you that you're back in range chances are you're going to overtreat your hypo because if you dip into a hypo you treat it with glucose tablets or whatever it is your cgm dips your blood sugars physically have come back up in range but your cgm is still going to play catch up and if you've taken glucose tablets your bloods are physically back up but your cgm might still be going down or still hasn't caught up you're a lot more inclined to kind of freak out and you're like oh no it's not coming back up it's not coming back up and then you overtreat that's what happened to me plenty of times what does happen to me plenty of times so if you can be patient your bloods are going to come back up depending on how you treat it and don't rely on your cgm i always double check hypos with my blood glucose monitor because that's a lot more accurate whereas if i'm relying on my cgm to tell me that i'm back up of course i'm going to freak out of course i'm going to overtreat so definite strategy glucose tablets at all times and don't rely on your cgm i think that can help there we have it 100 episodes finito thank you very much for all those questions and if you want to put in a question as we always say the email is there the podcast at gmail.com you can find it in the description below 100 episodes down Owen here's the next 100 here's the next 100 absolutely let's go massive thank you to everybody who listens if you didn't listen to this each week the podcast probably would not exist because I wouldn't be bothered putting it out <laughs> if nobody was listening. So I appreciate you showing up each week. I appreciate your ears. And I actually did a little bit of maths before this episode. Mm-hmm. And if on average our episodes are 45 minutes, oh, that on. means that we've done a total of four and a half thousand minutes of the podcast. And that equates into... 3.125 full days of the podcast wow. so i greatly appreciate you listening to Jeez. three full days of me and graham talk a lot of good stuff but a lot of crap at the same time crap. Yeah. So, <laughs> so maybe a we should of, do a ma- marathon episode um what we do it for 48 hours solid I'm actually busy. I think there's <laughs> something on that day. Yeah, <laughs> but no, honestly, yeah. I, I sincerely appreciate everybody who listens and I can't wait for the next 100. So brilliant. Thank you for your time. Pleasure. Pleasure being Until here. 101. Let's go. Have a good day. Have a good week. Look after those blood sugars. I will chat to you soon. Good luck. <laughs>